Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Janine Soderwood, who is a software development team lead at ThoughtBot. Janine joins us from Santa Clara, California in the United States. Janine Soderwood, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks, Robbie. I'm super happy to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, one of the things that I think is always really important is to make sure that your underlying framework is kept at least one major version updated behind the latest one, ideally up to the latest version. And any plugins that you use to support your code is also kept updated as well. So I know that you also work in the Ruby on Rails environment where you've been working and where you work right now and where you previously worked for yourself. And and we'll talk a little bit about the consulting world a little bit today because we share that in common. So I'm kind of excited to talk about some of those things. But when it comes to working on software projects and you're talking about the framework, like keeping things relatively up to date, what sort of challenges do you see that teams often have to navigate that prevents them from just saying, why don't we just every week we just upgrade the stack? Why isn't that easy? Well, I think that feature development can often get in the way. In the consulting world, clients are often excited about building new features, but they're not always excited about upgrading. And that's not necessarily, I guess I should rephrase that, it's not necessarily because the clients aren't excited about upgrading, but it's something that they can't see. And so as developers, it's really important that we take the initiative to keep code bases upgraded. But, you know, when you're working with a client and trying to decide on priorities. Even though as developers, we know that it is very important to keep gems upgraded for Ruby on Rails and the framework upgraded, the client is often less, that's less visible for the client. And so sometimes it just gets pushed to the background and we need to be good about bringing those issues up to the client and making sure that they understand the importance of well-maintained software. As someone that works in the consultancy realm, have you been able to come up with a good formula for how you can, I know that every client's a little different in terms of how you got to navigate any part of like negotiations or prioritization of some behind the scenes work versus, as you said, to kind of like the feature development or the things that they're they're asking for. And like, it's rare that a client comes to us specifically to say, hey, can, well, they might come to us and be like, hey, we need to upgrade. But occasionally, most often they're like, hey, we want to add some new features. And then when we look under the hood, we're like, well, you know, we can do that. There's also these other concerns around things that are kind of falling behind versions and things like that. And they're like, sometimes they say like, oh, we kind of knew that, or I didn't realize it was that bad of a situation or, or, and then they're kind of almost like finger pointing at their previous developers or their current team thinking like, well, why Mm -hmm. aren't they just taking care of this? And is this a problem with the framework itself? Should we have not used the framework? Have you, I think I know where the question is here necessarily, but like, what's been your kind of experience in those types of discussions? Yeah, I think a lot is all of the above. Yeah, sometimes when I had my own consulting business, yeah, sometimes I would have a project get brought to me and they would want to be building new features. But before you can really even get started, you kind of have to back up and say, okay, we've got to spend a fair amount of time working on getting the framework updated, programming language updated to the latest. And certainly um, not every project that you work on has a decent test suite. Mm -hmm. So for me, before I start working on something, I always want to make sure that if there is a test suite, that that's test surpassing and everything is a go there. And if they have no test suite, then I also want to take some time and 
you know, make sure that I can get a good understanding of how the application works. In terms of having conversations with the client in order to prioritize maintenance. So in the case where the client comes to you and they it needs a lot of work, that's kind of an easy conversation to have in some ways. Like this work definitely needs to happen before we can, you know, do any new feature development. Sometimes it's a little bit harder if the feature work can be done, but it's kind of being done at the expense of taking time to maintain the software and make upgrades. And in that case, you know, we're able to, you know, have a discussion with the client um, and just really bring up the issues of technical debt and the delays if you are not maintaining your software, then it's going to cost you much more in the long run. And for some projects, depending on the amount of work there is, sometimes, you know, you kind of sneak in maintenance as you go along. It's not something where you're like, okay, I'm going to have this big conversation with the client, but you're working on a feature that's big enough. Um, there's room to take some time to upgrade gems and upgrade Ruby. And they don't necessarily let them know like, okay, we're working on these and these are some improvements that we made along the way, but just kind of work it in as part of the feature development that you're doing. I think it's always this interesting kind of dance around wanting to, I mean, I, I think whoever's paying to have some software developed and built, they're probably not wanting to feel like they have to like make a decision on every single technical thing. That's why they hired you, right? You're like, oh. like, I want some features and they're kind of, I would assume that most people are that are hiring a development agency or a full-time employee to be a developer at their company. They're hiring that person and they want to instill like, can you take care of this stuff and you be a good steward of like the short and long-term needs of this software project. And then I will talk to a lot of developers like, wow, I just can't really figure out how to convince them to let me spend time doing this. And I'm like, but that's what they hired you for. So you can take care of it. I don't know that you need to, I'm imagining that they have their own tools and software tools that they're using, whether it's like some SaaS to do part of their job, a to-do system, like no one's, they're not asking for permission to like reorganize their workload or reformat their spreadsheets or reports or whatever. They're not, like they're doing that because it's like going to help them do their job more efficiently or things like that as well. So this is interesting kind of thing where if it's not a ticket necessarily or an issue that the client asks for, then it's an extra then that doesn't seem to apply to other people's professions in the same way. And I don't understand why we maybe struggle with that. What's been your kind of experience on that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I think that there is, in some ways, like a big misunderstanding, or, or misunderstanding is the right word, but just kind of a knowledge gap, I think, for the clients that we work for that we're building software for. A lot of the people that we interface with are non-technical. And I think they just don't have an understanding of how architecture can change. You know, you've got a site that's running somewhere and it's fine and they haven't asked for any changes in three years and all of a sudden it's not working anymore and their developer hasn't touched the code base and they haven't asked for any changes. You know, what's happened? Why is it breaking? And it's like, okay, well, this was running on Heroku and Heroku's now deprecated their yes. platform <laughs> and it doesn't work anymore. And so I think there's definitely a big gap between the client's understanding often of how that works. And, you know, certainly as a developer or as developers, it's probably, you know, definitely our job to help educate clients on all of those things so that they're not surprised things do break down and making sure that they understand, you know, when a client hires you to build some sort of web application that is not going to last forever in its current state, that they are going to need maintenance for it. And I think that's something, you know, can be surprising and that, Often clients just don't have that, yeah, just don't have that kind of understanding that the longer that you sit and wait for something to get maintained, like the more expensive it's going to be, the more difficult it's going to be to upgrade it. I think it's a, sometimes I wonder if there's this kind of whole chicken egg problem where projects need to get built for the, in the, initially. And so 
It's one of the, it's interesting that, you know, we both work at consultancies and one of the things that we found is that when we were working with startups more often that we could have conversations around, well, what's your budget to launch this thing or get some, some initial version out the door? And that would be some range that they'd be able to work with and we'd see how much we can get out the door for them and launch them. But we learned that like, well, we also need to have the conversation can you afford the next one to two years of maintaining this thing? Where's the budget coming from? And they're like, well, what do you mean? And like, well, there's going to be changes you need to respond to like, oh, well, we're, we, we have everything planned out and we can go through the whole process about like, that's why you kind of iteratively develop and things. But there was, there was always this kind of problem of worrying about, you know, maybe as, I don't know if this has ever been something you've experienced, but it's like, where's that line of like warranty on the work that you produce? Yeah. In this it's a tricky thing where the people are like, well, if there's a bug, then you did something wrong. And I'm like, no, it's right. kind of software. And so we're, we've, you know, over the years intentionally just said, you know, we need to get away from ever having that conversation and we'll come in later projects that survive the first couple of years of development. They got past those awkward conversations and burning bridges with whoever they're working with developers and clients. And then like, okay, this project survived and the develop the team that originally built it no longer around. They, for whatever reason, it didn't work out long-term because they were like maybe feeling like they were stuck in this warranty fixing bugs for free for a while like no you got to start paying us for this extra work client like i didn't understand that that was going to be the thing and then mm -hmm. a couple years later we're like yeah this is just ongoing development and you're going to pay for everything that we work on and that's we mm -hmm. don't have to have the same sort of conversation in the same way have you had those kind of like realizations or experiences in your in, in your career path yeah, when I had my own consulting business, yeah, just in my contract, you know, I'd have something about like, this is kind of like what we were talking about before, like, this is not going to necessarily work forever. And there may be bugs that develop later with like third party integrations, like that's kind of like a whole nother topic where you've yeah. got something functioning fine, and pulling some API, and then this third party makes some change to their API. And or what you know, something like that happens, and all of a sudden something breaks. So yeah, being able to discuss with the client that this application it depends on a lot of like third-party factors. It depends on a hosting site. It depends on third-party integrations. There's like so many things that come into play there, and yeah, just what you were saying with there being bugs, like that software development. I think that's a really hard concept mm -hmm. for or to get across to clients, um, where it is like okay, well, you're building me something, it's going to be bug-free, and then it's just going to be done. And, you know, software is never like that. It's really kind of never finished. And I think that is really difficult to have clients understand and certainly to see it in writing, you know, if you're putting in a contract, like there will always be some bugs or software is never bug-free. But I think that's that can be difficult for a client to say like, oh, what does that mean? And why is that true? Hey folks, it's me, Robbie. I want you to take a moment and close your eyes. Now picture your code and your applications as a symphony. Now to keep that symphony playing smoothly, you need an orchestra of tools. That's where our podcast sponsor, AppSignal, takes center stage. They combine the elegance of error tracking, the precision of performance monitoring, and the harmony of logging into one symphonic suite. Whether you're composing with Ruby, jamming with Elixir, orchestrating with Node.js, or harmonizing with Python, or maybe even a little bit of 
flourish of JavaScript, AppSignals got the sheet music for you. And here's the crescendo. Plans start at just $23 US a month. That's gotta be music to your budget's ears. Plus they're certified ISO 27001 and they dance the GDPR and HIPAA compliance beats. So don't miss a beat, my friends. Head on over to appsignal.com and tell them that your good friend Robbie from Maintainable sent you. Now, open your eyes and let the symphony of smooth coding begin. Let's get back to our show. Sure, and then gets passed over to their legal department to review, and they're like, "How could?" And then you're going back and forth, yeah. trying to explain software development with some in between some client and their lawyer, and you're just like, "This is." Anyways, that there's a reason why we don't tend to work with a lot of startups early. I, mean, I feel like it's changed a lot more, you know, a lot in the last 10, 15 years, but there was definitely an era in our life cycle of our company where we're like, every time it was just this like, no, 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 no. Like, where's this? And when do we decide like, we're no longer providing, I'm air quoting, free bug fixes. We're beyond that. And it ended up being this squishy, fuzzy thing. We're like, we're done after this date. If you haven't tested yeah. it, you've not done tested it. There's anything else pops up. It's just, it's like, it works, but there's always going to be some weird edge cases we didn't account for. That's software development. And for someone that's getting their, you know, spending all their investment on building up this new thing and then just hoping that they're going to be able to make a viable business out of that is a whole nother challenge, right? And so. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've certainly found, I mean, this is a little bit more into the consulting in terms of like billing and things like that, but just you're built doing a fixed price project. Yeah, where does it end? Because maintenance is kind of ongoing and where do you draw the line for like, okay, we're delivering you this set of this piece of software with these kind of known bugs and here's the line. And then we need to shift into maintenance where we can fix these little things and we can keep your site up to date and keep the architecture up to date. That can be really difficult. Speaking of consulting, running your own consultancy, and now you work at ThoughtBot, another consultancy. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what do you believe it takes to be a good guest in another team's code base? Certainly, I always like to find out what their, just what their general processes are. Like what are their processes in place for code reviews? How do they handle deployments? Do they have a testing suite? How do they do tests? And yeah, just get it, getting kind of a feel for the culture and yeah, what kind of processes are in our place and what maybe things could be improved upon. But I think certainly coming in and asking like why something may be there, if you're not sure if something kind of strikes you as like, oh, this seems really odd. Instead of going in and ripping it out, checking to see like why some system might be in place or why some particular coding structure might be there and working with another team to figure out the ins and outs of that. We found some effective ways of, if you're identifying these areas that you have maybe some recommendations or how to start having those conversations. Like if you have recommendations, do you go in like, do you try to understand for a little bit and then start making recommendations or do you come in and be like, they hired us because we're, you know, air quoting experts and we need to come in and be super opinionated. That's what they want from us. Or how do you, how do you kind of balance that? Yeah. Try not to come in as the, we're the experts unless that's what they've asked for. Um, you know, if they are like, hi, our dev team is really struggling and they really want some support from you, you know, and that's kind of what the request is, then that's, then that's one thing. But in general, I don't feel like that well appreciated from other client dev teams. So certainly coming in with um, a softer approach and yeah, asking questions, trying to figure out why, and then, you know, having meetings sometimes, you know, having a kind of like a, yeah, like having a, you know, regular meeting to kind of sit down, talk to the other developers, talk about some ideas about what works, why it works, um, the benefits that you've seen, the problems that you're seeing perhaps in a 
current process and how some of those issues can be alleviated with a different process. But yeah, I think trying to get get buy-in as much as possible and, you know, understanding that that might not always be the case, but certainly saying like, let's try this out and see how it goes. And, you know, we can try it for a month or a few weeks and we can assess and see how it's working and we can adjust and go from there. I like that angle of uh, maybe proposing something and then maybe experiment with this for a little bit or try it out, pilot it for a set period of time. So it's not a forever change. Yeah. I always found that that tactic seemed to work well myself, even with my own team in terms of like, mm-hmm. if I want to like, I'm like, I believe this seems like a better idea, but I'm like, I can't pitch it forever. And I, I actually don't even fully intend it ever. It's just like a theory or a hunch. And I'm like, maybe we could try this for a little bit. And rather than trying to like politicize it in a way, I'm like, no, 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 let's like, I'm going to convince everyone. Like, let's, can we just try this? Can we all do this for 30 days or 45 days and yeah. we'll come back and we'll keep doing it and we can renew this idea or just be like, if, if we're not even doing it in 60 days and no one's, I guess we've not done it, then obviously it wasn't it didn't work out, I guess, but um, yeah, I really like the experiments idea because I think it does come across as, I don't know, like non-threatening yeah. in some ways, like, you know, we're just going to try something out and see how it goes. It leaves open the possibility to revert back to a prior process that maybe, you know, another developer liked better. And at least it gives you something to compare against that, you know, you've got two things, you can talk about the pros and cons. Maybe you can end up pulling a little bit from both to make a better third system all the way around. That's better. But yeah, I kind of like the experimentation idea a lot. Another topic that I was keen to speak with you about is collaborating with junior developers. What do you believe are some beneficial ways to approach mentoring a junior developer who is seeking help and feedback? So I think peering is a really great way to work with junior developers. It's really great to be able to work together, have them start coding and kind of see where they get stuck, what things trip them up. And also the reverse to be the one driving the situation and having them just be able to watch and kind of get some ideas for how to approach a challenging technical issue. I am a huge believer in testing. So certainly when I'm pairing with a more junior developer, we'll always start with testing as much as we possibly can. I think that's a really good skill to help develop in more junior developers. And, you know, I think often we just kind of want to jump in and work in building the feature and being able to work together to kind of slow down, write tests. I feel that tests really help you think about the edge cases that you might run into. And those can often end up being things that get missed when you're not testing. So maybe you deliver a feature and, you know, you've forgotten to think about the case when some field isn't filled in or something like that and bugs pop up. So certainly working on testing together, I think is really important. Is there a kind of a set consistent time frame for when you're typically getting to do that with a junior developer? Do you tend to pre-schedule or is it more of a reactive, like they're going to, someone's kind of raising their hands, whether that's maybe raising their hands in Slack mm-hmm. or in a, in a ticket or something, like you do someone mm-hmm. to pair with. How do you, how do you kind of approach that with the, the teams that you're, or the developers you're working with? Primarily, we try to do a little bit more proactive planning at a time, trying to think about tickets that you know, might be really good to pair on, might be a really good learning experience. You know, recently um, we've been working on some Elasticsearch tickets for one project and one of the developers on the client side doesn't have a lot of experience Mm. with Elasticsearch. So we've been pairing together on that and that's been fun. And yeah, and definitely there's, I mean, yeah, certainly if a junior, more junior developer is working and needs help, always happy to like hop on and pair together. But I think primarily trying to organize that time just to make sure it happens. I think there's also you know, can be a little bit of being intimidated to ask for help. So I think it's really good to be able to set that time and make sure that it's on the calendar, people show up and mm-hmm. get the help that they need. 
you know, when you're working on something difficult, you know, you're like, okay, I'm just going to work for a little bit more. I can't quite get it, but like, okay, I'm going to do one more Google search. Oh, can't, you know, let me do another, another <laughs> little bit of looking and then I'll ask for help. And sometimes it's like, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. So I really like the kind of just setting up time ahead of time to work on something. We'll be back with our interview, Janine, in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. You can pop over there right now, give me a three, four, five star, one star rating. And if you're not sure what to write in the comment thing to say, I really enjoyed the conversation with Janine Soderwin. That's what you could write. Go do that right now. I guess this is in the middle of the podcast. Maybe the jury's still out. Having said that, do you know someone in the industry you think I should be having on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Janine Soderwood. I think that's really important for for organizations to consider is that idea, yeah, just being proactive and planning for that, I think a little bit ahead of time. One of the things that we try to kind of do, and it's, and we were doing this before the pandemic as well, but it was always, we were, we've been doing pairing. But at one point we realized from feedback from some interns that we had had once that when, especially when we were all in the office pre-pandemic and now we're, you know, all remote, but there was this kind of a concern that like, well, junior, like a junior or an intern developer might be getting stuck on something and need help at the moment. But, you know, we'd look across the room and one of the people that they might want to ask for do some pairing seemed deep into something. And and they're like, well, I don't want to bother them right now. So I'll just wait till later and ask if they can pair. I don't want to disrupt their flow right now. And then when we move to this remote world, you don't, you can't even tell anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, it's this weird thing. We're like, that's so interesting. Is everybody really, really busy right now? Or if I'm, if I'm just going to disrupt them. So we were like, oh, no, 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 we don't want, like, if you would ask that other developer, hey, could I get your help? They'd be like, they could, they would tell you like, I can't right now, but maybe in a half hour or something like that, I want to do it then. But because they looked really busy and focused. And then on the flip side, we could see when an intern or a junior developer or anyone on the team was kind of like struggling, you would yeah. notice that they were like, right. like overflow for every time you glance <laughs> at the screen, you're yeah. like, you need to talk about anything? Um, so but when it's yeah. all remote, I don't know how teams are doing that without proactively doing it. Because if someone's asking for help, I'm just going to assume that they've already hit their head against the wall for a while. For sure. and they've got the courage to ask and like say, hey, I need some help over here. Yeah, no, that is a really interesting observation about the like pre-pandemic life. And yeah, again, like with my own consulting business, I've worked very solo and always remote. So I haven't had that experience. But yeah, I I think that is one of the nice things about having remote work where you can't necessarily see what other people are working on. And it's easy to just be on Slack, like, Hey, I need some help. Is anybody around um, to pair with me? That's really nice. I think, but you're right. The flip side of not being able to tell if somebody is, if somebody is stuck or not. Though sometimes I think, well, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like you just have that little, like, Oh, this person's been kind of quiet. Let me reach out and see if they are stuck or if they need any help on anything. I just wonder how difficult it is for a junior developer coming up in this in this environment now. And they're probably learning a lot of other skills being, I grew up in my career around people in the development team, be able to ask people mm-hmm. for help or slide over my chair and be like, hey, can you help me? Or slide over here for a moment. Mm-hmm. 
and which felt quicker than like, hey, do you have time to do this? And like, yeah, let's schedule a thing, put it on the calendar, or let's pop into tuple right now. We'll do some pairing right now. It kind of varies. Or there's also the uh, the Slack conversations back and forth in the big thread where three or four developers are kind of trying to figure out how to debug something, and which yeah. is great too. And um, uh-huh. there's another part of me that's like, can we all just hop on the, the pairing tool real quick and just see if we right. can work this out in the code? Because did you try that? And then you're waiting for five minutes for them to let you know. Oh, right. They're, yeah. They're typing. And you're like, did it work? Are you, what happened? Or is this solved yet? So it's a, an interesting different sort of communication challenges that I think teams are needing to navigate, come up with their own conventions for, you know, communicating that with each other. You know, while preparing for this discussion, you mentioned that you've been a total convert to non-dry tests. Oh yeah. Tell me more about this. You know, I really like to write dry code as much as possible and, you know, just sort of like organizational kind of personality. So yeah, we're writing tests. It's like, okay, I'm going to like neaten this up and we're going to, you know, we use RSpec generally for my projects and, you know, I'm going to use let statements and, but anyway, so that was generally how, that was how I learned to write tests. And then that was how I wrote them for years. But then I did start to get to the point where something would break and I would go back and I'm like, it was like code that I had not looked at for quite a long time. And it's felt like a slog, like, oh my gosh, I'm like, how is this variable being defined? I'd have shared tests and like different files. And it's like, oh, I'm spending a lot of time, you know, kind of trying to go back and figure out how these variables are defined. And then I was doing, I guess maybe there was a little bit of discussion on Twitter or something about having non-dry tests. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of, yeah, maybe this is something that I should try. And, you know, hadn't quite gotten myself to do it. But then I ended up overlapping with ThoughtBot on, I was a contractor on a project and ThoughtBot was also on the on the project as well. So I was working on a spec and had my usual let statements and the variables defined at the top of the file. And one of the ThoughtBot developers just asked nicely if like, oh, would you consider just putting all of the variables, defining it all within the spec itself and removing the let statements? And I was like, yes, let's try that. I'd be happy to. And once I started doing that, I was like, oh yeah, I I love this. I feel like it is so much easier to understand all the setup and teardown of a spec in itself. And yeah, it just makes going back, you know, in terms of like maintaining software, when you do have to go back and look at code that you haven't looked at in a while, like everything is just right there. There's not a lot of jumping around. And the other thing I really like is I work on one of the projects for the Ruby for Good organization. And there's a lot of new developers that come to that project. And again, like they're often new at writing tests, new in software development in general. And I really feel like when they sit down to work on specs themselves or when they're needing to modify some existing specs, it's so much easier for them if all of the setup and teardown is just in that one test. And yeah, it's much easier for them to follow it, much easier for them to write the test as well, because they can just like, okay, what objects do I need? Let me create them. So yeah, so I am now just like a total convert to the non-dry tests. Even though sometimes it does, it is hard. You're like, okay, I'm like repeating myself like many times because your tests are similar and, you know, and you're kind of repeating blocks. But yeah, I, I really love it. It's interesting. So in a way, so it's kind of being an advocate for, so in those scenarios where if you add some sort of other say dependency for that would impact several tests, you would just be adding maybe multiple times. And does that part feel awkward at all to you? Or is it like, well, I, we're just updating this. And so does it end up tend to be kind of a copy paste of that section, but at least it kind of keeps it more grouped within the test? Or... Yeah. 
a lot of it is just kind of a copy and paste. Mm-hmm. You know, there's sometimes something that we'll pull out, like maybe we're stubbing an environment variable or something. So we'll just like stub that in a before block at the beginning of mm-hmm. the test suite. But in general, yeah, there's a lot of repetition in the test suite. But I think that, you know, the ability to yeah to maintain those test suite over time and for ease of other developers coming into a project, I really like those benefits. You know, so when it comes to thinking about how teams navigate like managing technical debt, what sort of processes have you found to work well for if you can't work on it right now, but want to make sure that it can come back up later? What How does the team know to like, is there a backlog? Is there a, just a running list somewhere, a spreadsheet, a to-do list? Like, how do you think about that as a team with your clients and stuff like that? Usually keeping it on some sort of project board and a backlog is usually how I personally like to work with those. Again, it is kind of what we were talking about at the beginning where feature work often can kind of come in and take precedence. But I do think it's really important to have those visible um, and, you know, be able to bring those up in client discussions like, okay, this is coming up or this is hitting end of life. So we really need to work on it. There's kind of no choice at this point. The thing I'm always curious about is I've experienced this within coming, you know, helping a, a company that has their own development team where the development team feels like, yeah, we keep this running list going. And I'll ask, you know, a developer will say, I've asked about this or pushed for this a few times. And they said, they, I'm air quoting, they, the, the powers that be have said, not right now, a few too many mm-hmm. times that they stopped asking and they don't trust that that list is really going to be tended to. Mm-hmm. So they just kind of give up on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And they're like, mm-hmm. well, what's the point if they never said yes, they're not going to, what do you say to that? Do you have any advice for people that might be finding themselves in a similar situation where they've said, I'd like to take care of this, but they've heard right not right now, a few too many times. And so they've kind of just no longer feel like it's worth bringing up anymore. Well, I certainly think that it's really important to talk about the financial aspect mm-hmm of not handling those issues. You know, the longer you wait to fix things, the more like related things are going to be broken or code that is going to be, you know, you might be using a plugin of some sort that now is not kept up to date. You need to upgrade to Ruby 3 and this plugin you're using is not maintained anymore. And so you have to have like a completely different solution um, in place for maybe like a major chunk of your application. And that can take hours of time. So I think certainly approaching things from a financial perspective is really important. You know, and again, it can be kind of hard to see because it's not necessarily in the here and now, Um, but really being able to drive home that building up a lot of technical debt, um, you're just really pushing that can down the road and, and the costs are just going to really increase down the line to fix those. Hey, it's Robbie again. Have you signed up for the newsletter? No? Yes, maybe? No? Head over to maintainable.fm slash newsletter or to the Maintainable website and click on newsletter in the navigation and give us your email address and we will send you an email when there's a new episode out and or you'll also get some emails about episodes that I enjoyed in the past from the vault. We've got 150 plus episodes. You probably haven't listened to them all. I'm going to tell you about a few of them. So head over to maintainable.fm slash newsletter and give me your email address. I promise I won't spam you. Just useful information about the podcast. With that, let's get back to our interview with Janine Soderwood. One of the things I'm kind of curious about is, you know, you mentioned earlier the scenario where 
say Heroku's end up, you know, long, no longer going to support a certain version of your programming language or something, you know, something like that, which is a thing that mm-hmm. does happen every, you know, every once in a while. You know, it's interesting as a consultant, I found that it's been way easier to get a client to react to an email that comes from Heroku that says, oh. this will no longer be supported after this date. And we're, and we can just be like, it's not us, it's them. They're right there, you know, and we, you decided that that's where you wanted to host your application. We need to do this. And this is now what needs to happen. And I kind of I'm like, oh my gosh, I just wish there were more official, seemingly official things coming from a Ruby gem or from the rails. Like this needs to happen. Like you need to upgrade your, it's not us. It's the yeah. project, you know, and so you can point that someone else is forcing you to like have to do all this versus it yeah. being something that you need to persuade them. It, you know, it's just interesting. For sure. I mean, I do really like in terms of, I mean, there's so many different like billing models for, you know, software development, but I do like having a retainer model where we're get like as developers, we have X number of hours to work on maintenance where we don't need to go and talk to the client to like get approval mm-hmm. for it. Like we just get to work on this maintenance It's behind the scenes. And that always makes me feel better in terms of like, okay, there's a monthly maintenance budget to work on whatever upgrades are needed. You know, sometimes maybe we need to do a big Rails upgrade, for example, and that's going to take, you know, many more hours or something, depending what the situation is. But I, it gives me kind of a lot of peace to know, like, okay, I've got a certain amount of budget that is just for maintenance. It can't be used for feature development. It's just to keep the site maintained for whatever things come up. So if Heroku is retiring their latest stack or other latest stack. If Heroku is retiring one of their older stacks, then as a developer, I can come in and can work on that upgrade quietly in the background. So I want to take a kind of a step back a little bit and think, you know, we talked a little bit about junior developers in particular, and, you know, just, you know, we've talked a lot about technical debt and how to organize that work and how to work on providing support with your consultancy type clients for junior developers coming into this industry. For anyone that's listening that might find themselves to be a junior developer or considering bringing in a junior developer within the context of a consulting area of, of an organization, why do you think, do you, make might be making an assumption, but do you think that it would be beneficial for a developer coming into this industry to go into the consulting sphere or do you, would you recommend that they go for, work at a product company first? Do you have a strong opinion? Oh, I haven't really thought about it, but I definitely think the consulting sphere is great to go into um, just because there's such like a wide variety of projects to work on. Um, you get to see so much stuff. That's what I've really loved about consulting is just the variety of different kinds of projects and yeah, getting to work with other clients developers, you know, that is definitely can bring a lot of knowledge and just also yeah, learning in the, if you're you know interested in consulting, obviously there's things to learn for consulting there. But yeah, I, I think that coming in, I think consulting is a great way for junior developers is a great space for them to come into certainly with a variety of projects to work on and just getting introduced to a lot of different aspects of software development and architecture. I always wonder if I think that way because I'm, I'm very biased because I've been in that world because I'm like, I don't mm-hmm. know that I'm a product person. I'm like, I like the variety. I like learning and I can feel like I learn a lot from just being exposed to so many different projects and mm-hmm. hear, seeing how different people and different teams have approached similar types of technical challenges and be like, well, that's interesting. And just to see how things play out, you know, five to 10 years down the road when they made these decisions, see a lot of problems and I'm like, well, that's interesting. And like, you learn from that. And then, but 
I've appreciated that. And I'm like, I don't know, I would have had the same sort of skill set. Maybe I specialize in something else within the context of a product company. So I don't know. But I do feel like those are two very different paths for developers to potentially explore. And you can, it's always been interesting when we're recruiting and we're very intentional, like, hey, we work with several different clients. You're going to have some context mm-hmm. switching. You may work across mm-hmm. a couple different clients in a week, you know, and that's, that might be um, startling for you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm working on for this e-commerce thing. And now I'm working on like an insurance company's backend thing, PDF generation, and you're doing this other thing. And that's a lot of other things, but you're getting to work on code, but it's, it's a very different working relationship than I think getting to work on the same product day in and day out for a long period of time, which is sounds appealing. I can see why that might be interesting too. But I feel like people, I mean, I, I haven't worked on another yeah. product company in 20 years, so I don't. Oh, I really like the, I mean, often you kind of do work on similar things on different projects. And so, you know, being able to borrow your code mm-hmm. from another project, but then being able to be like, oh, actually, I now I see a better way of doing this. I'm whatever, two more years skilled or a year more skilled than I was previously when working on this, um, you know, and improving on this little piece that you're working on. And then maybe on another project, you're like, oh, here this thing is again. And maybe another develop you've worked with another developer who's like, oh, here's a totally different way to approach this problem. And it's like, oh yeah, that's really cool. I never thought about doing that. And just being able to kind of yeah, look back and kind of see your own growth as a developer and yeah, and just being able to take what you've learned and build on it and see how the, all of that changes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for uh, kind of talking a little bit about the world of consulting, uh, consulting world with me. Cause I think that's, I'm, I always get kind of excited to get to talk to other people that are in that world. Cause it's so different than a lot of our other guests that come from the product world. So a couple of quick last questions for you. One, is there a non-software slash non-technical book that you find yourself recommending to peers on a regular basis? I really love the book, A Little Life. And I think that one of the reasons I really like to recommend that book is the author seems to have so much knowledge about so many different areas. Always, I just sort of read it and I feel sort of amazed that somebody can have such a breadth and depth of knowledge across so many different topics. And I love the story also. Great. I will include a link to that in the show notes for our listeners. And check that out myself as well. I was like getting book okay. recommendations from people. And where can listeners best follow your thoughts and ruminations about software engineering online? The ThoughtBot blog is always a good place to get good software development tips. Excellent. I will include links to that for everybody as well. And with that, it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Jeanine. Thank you so much for stopping by the talk shop. Thanks, Robbie. This was super fun.